Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Gwen Dobbenmeyer with Remax in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Last year, she closed 116 transactions with a total sales volume of $21 million. Her average sales price was $181,000, of which 57% were buyers and 43% were sellers. She operates a team with six members, three buyer specialists, one part-time executive assistant listing coordinator, one part-time closing coordinator, and one team leader. Gwen Dobbenmeyer is the team leader of the Integrity Team. She's been an agent for 29 years and works the Metro Detroit market. In this call, Gwen talks about her super slow start in real estate, taking six months to sell her first home, rebounding from a career-crushing recession where home values fell 42%, how she generates 94% of her business by repeating referrals from past clients and sphere of influence, including her informal marketing plan, why she has a black belt in introvert marketing, how she gets big numbers from a small database. Last year, she got one closing from every seven people in her database, the four ways people get into her database, and why she takes some people out, her inclusive core value that the people in her database are her family, in her nest, and are one of us. How she uses Facebook to connect with her database and her creative use of lists. Her decision-guiding mantra of people over things. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Gwen. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. What an honor. Hey, Gwen. It's great to have you here. Gwen, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Okay, well, I'm going to have to go back a couple of decades, but before I got into real estate, I worked at a CPA firm. I started there in my early 20s. By the time I left the CPA firm, I had been the office manager for quite some time and was just a little restless and thought real estate looked like it would be fun and I could set my own hours since I had a young son at that time. Did you know someone in real estate or just look like it'd be something that would be enjoyable? How, how did you make that transition? Do you recall? I do recall. Actually, it's, um, it's a great little story. So I had this great job at the CPA firm and loved my bosses and had this misconception that real estate was all fun and you could do it part-time and all that kind of stuff. So it looked attractive. But then on top of that, my husband and I bought our first house and we had the most horrible real estate experience I think anybody could ever have. We uh, didn't have much money at the time. We got married really young. Um, 
managed to save a few thousand dollars. And so we weren't looking in the best part of town, but every single house we went into, no matter what the condition, the guy would say to us, you know, you should put an offer on this one. It's not going to last every single one. So what the first time out we had, you know, four showings and, and Roger and I were very skeptical, but we ended up buying one of those houses. It took us 13 years to fix it to the point where we could actually sell it and move out. It was the proverbial money pit. And we were so angry because he had been so dishonest and we didn't have home inspections back then, but just about the history of the house and, you know, the school district, I mean, everything was wrong. And I was so upset about it. Finally, Roger said to me one day, he's like, Hey babe, you know what? You're either going to have to do something about this guy or you're just going to have to get over it. And I think what he was telling me is, you know, because I'm tired of hearing about it. So I did something about it and I got my real estate license two months later and quit my job. So he he doesn't dare me to do too many things. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. So you jumped into real estate. You you had a, a little bit of a misconception about the hours and the time frame, but you'd also had already been working hard there and building up some good habits, I assume. So when you got started, did you have a fast start or a slow start in real estate? I had a super slow start. I truly did not know the first thing about real estate other than, you know, I enjoyed decorating. I enjoyed seeing people. So, you know, all the things that you read about that you, that really give you a false impression of what the business actually is. So I went to a broker who was just close to, to me. I won't say what brand, but literally I did not understand what a broker was and I did not understand what a real estate agent was. I didn't understand how you got business. I thought people lined up at the door and just signed up. You know, I I did. I was so naive and I was in my 20s. I was very young. And um, this is an actual story and I'll tell you because he's passed now. But when I interviewed, I was asking this broker these questions. I said, well, I explain to me how the business works. Like, I don't get it. What is the broker? What is the realtor? You know, how does this happen? And after a couple of minutes of thinking and he's smoking his cigar and his blue puffy smoke filled office. And he said, well, it's like this. It's like the broker is the pimp and the agents are the prostitutes. And you go out and you get, <laughs> seriously, you go out and you get business, you bring it back in, we provide all the services and you share the money. And you know, for some reason, wow. Mike, I understood that illustration. Don't ask me why I still went into real estate. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh it's wow. A true story. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Wow. And you still went for it. Wow. Well, it sounds like it worked out. It's a hilarious <laughs> story, but it's also a pretty sad story. So we're so glad that our industry has come so far, but I do feel like I've had about nine or 10 careers in this 29 years, but funny story. Well, that was going to be my next question. So you've been in the business for 29 years? 29 years. Yeah. Wow. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, we closed 116 as a team. And if you want that divided up, I can divide that up personally. uh, I think I sold 60 myself. Do you remember what the total sales volume was? Just over 21 million. It was like 21 million 300 something, I think. 
Ah, that is fantastic. So you are in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Where is Bloomfield Hills? Bloomfield Hills is at 16 Mile Road, and if you know anything about Eminem and the 8 Mile Road, that will tell you that we are 8 miles north of the boundary for the city of Detroit proper. So we're a northern suburb. Bloomfield Hills is actually a pretty affluent suburb. It's on the border of a couple of different cities. My market is not a luxury market, but my address is a luxury address, if that makes sense. Describe your real estate market. You can have two communities right next door to each other with several hundred thousand dollars at difference in price. It's a pretty unique um, situation here. And we have a group of investors. So our price point is literally anything from $20,000 might be, uh, you know, an investor special, let's say, up to, you know, a house I listed yesterday for seven seventy-five, dollars and they're within 10 miles of each other. The market is different for each of those. So there's a lot of investor activity right now. So I would say investor to maybe 250 has a very low uh, inventory, very fast market time, probably two weeks or less. We're seeing some multiple offer situations in that price point. And even from 250 to 400, 50, let's say, in other communities will experience the same thing. I think the increase in the starter to investor, that has the highest percentage increase, which I think only makes sense. Our executive housing, which I would say is probably half a million dollars and over, I think there's uh, fewer buyers for those properties. I think the market time is a little bit longer, and I don't think the market is picking up as quickly. And again, I think that makes sense for our area because we we lost a lot of our upper management and our entrepreneurs who had companies that supported the auto industry. So we've lost a lot of our buyer population who would be, you know, purchasing half a million and up. Your market got hit pretty hard by the recession. Everyone got hit, but it sounds like you got hit a little harder. Do you recall how far down your values fell? Well, in, and again, because each community is different from another, I mean, it was literally per community, you know, a different average. But all told, I saw a statistic that I didn't work up myself, but I think it came from Crane's Business Detroit, if I'm not mistaken. But that set an average of 42%. Wow. And so not only was the value down 42%, but our numbers, you know, just the volume of units were down as well. So any agent that lasted through that bubble here in the metro area, we had a huge purge of people just get out of business because they couldn't afford it. I mean, those that lasted, we all have battle scars. It was was very tough. A lot of the markets around the nation have been coming back over the last few years. Have you been seeing your prices either stabilizing and or rising? Oh, yes. We're definitely rising. Do you think that you've made it back to where you were before the crash? No, not even close. Well, Gwen, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? No, but I want one. I hang around with those star power people because I feel like I need to have a niche. You know, I, I, I started with, how do you say it? Is it niche or is it niche? 
I've just cut my head down and done business, repeat business with the the people that I started with and the people then that they referred me. So um, that's kind of a regret. That's something that I think I should have done, but I don't. Well, it sounds like that you've niched into your past clients and sphere of influence. It accounted for a, a large portion of your business last year. Can you tell us what percent of your business came from repeating referrals from your past clients and sphere of influence? Well, last year we actually run metrics on this. It was over 90, 94% was our sphere of influence and our past clients. Wow. Wow, that's fabulous. We're pretty proud of that. Let's dive into that. A lot of people would like to develop their past client and sphere of influence business. So let's break that down a little bit. First of all, how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? As of yesterday, we have 1,029 contacts in the database. I'm changing CRM, so I happen to look at that number. But I would take out of that probably about... 200 for vendors and other client contacts and that kind of thing. So I think my actual sphere and client database is somewhere around 850. So that's pretty exciting to me because you're basically telling me you have a database of 850 people and out of that database, you closed 116 transactions. Uh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. If, if you were to take the 850 and you were going to split them down one more time between the number that are past clients and the number that are sphere of influence, would you be able to do that? No, but that's a darn fine idea. <laughs> so, so currently, the 850 is the combination of both of them. Yeah, we adopt people. So I haven't, I haven't divided them further. It's like when we pull them into our family or our nest, they're just one of us. And so we treat them equally, but there's probably value in doing that further. I like the way you're talking about them. You adopt the people, you bring them into your family, you bring them into your nest. It sounds like a very tight-knit group, or at least you want to create that feeling, that relationship, a, a deep relationship with each of these people. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Our mantra on this team and, and mine, because my team is new, but mine all through my career, I have had to say to myself at least several times a week as we're faced with really difficult decisions about making money or killing a deal, people over things, people over things, people over things. So for us, it's always people over things. So I'm completely relational. You've been building this database up for a while which people go into the database? How do you decide who is going to go in? That's a really good question. So my database is pretty important, and not everybody gets in there. I mean, there's a lot of really nice people in this world that we do business with, but the people who actually get into our database are people who have signed something with us. That doesn't mean closed. That means attempted people who have signed something for us, people who have sent us a referral, and people who have set an appointment with us. And the fourth criteria is we have to like them. <laughs> <laughs> so if we don't like them, mm, they're probably not going to make it in there after we close. But those are the four things because there are people I've never done business with that have sent me multiple referrals. And how did those people make it in? 
I'm thinking of one couple in particular. Um, we met them through, how did we meet them through some community event, some hockey game. I think it was my nephew's hockey game. And we just, you know, saw them several times and they gave us a referral. Once they give us a referral, they go in our database. And they've been in their house for 22 years. I mean, they probably have no intention of moving whatsoever, but they are a raving fan. And so they they get into our database that way when they send us a referral is for sure. I mean, that's every bit as valuable as if they had sold through us or bought through us themselves. Do you keep a separate database for leads, for people who haven't signed anything, haven't referred yet, haven't set an appointment? Okay, gosh, now you're touching on the things that I really completely suck at. So we're tackling, honestly, I'm embarrassed to say we've never marketed ourselves. So I'm like a, you know, I'm like a kindergartner when it comes to that. But we started marketing ourselves last year. And I tried to get, I think it was Boomtown here, but my zip codes, you know, was sold out or something like that. So in October, we just implemented a lead gen system called conversion and my two buyers agents use conversion and that has a CRM for leads. Those people do not make it into my database, into my CRM database, unless they sign something, they buy something or they send us a referral. So wherever that comes from, my database is reserved. I don't filter leads in through there, through our Remax lead gen or anything like that. They do not go into my database. It sounds to me like you're coming from the school of what I call selective. You're very selective about who's going into your database, who you're going to spend your time with. They've got to jump through a a hoop of some type in order to get into that database. And, of course, the hoops were they signed something, they referred someone, they set an appointment, and you like them. Correct. That's exactly right. Do you ever remove people from your database? And if so, why? Oh, absolutely. There's one client I can think of um, right now that I sold three houses to. And the last house I sold him, when he called and left a message on my phone that, you know, he was ready to, um, you know, sell this house and move again, I actually, like, had a physical reaction. I was thinking to myself, why am I putting myself through this? You know, he's uber-demanding emails at 11.30 at night and expects a return phone call that evening. It's just, you know, one of those clients that's very demanding. That is not my core value. That's not how I treat people when I want service from someone else. I don't run on that frequency. So, um, you know, I just told him I didn't think that I could help him this time around. It was just stressful for him and stressful for me. And I'd be happy to find him someone else. And of course, he said he would find his own agent. And that was fine with me. But yes, we we do. I also had somebody else, because I'm pretty knowledgeable on distressed properties, want me to coach them on how to commit fraud. I mean, flat out, that's what it was. So that was gone. I do remove people from my database who move out of the state. I don't appreciate getting emails from people inviting me to their open house, and it's another agent that I love and adore, but they're in Texas. So therefore, I don't think my past client who was transferred out of Michigan needs to hear from me, you know, 12 times a year or whatever good agents contact that frequency. So if they do move out of the area, I, I don't 
leave them in that database. So you have a lot of courage. You're willing to turn down business, even with a past client, if it doesn't feel like it's a good fit anymore. I think that's, that's really important and a valuable insight into your business. Well, we have our core values right on our webpage. And my whole philosophy, my website, it's very real. My blogs are very real. My whole philosophy is if you are totally yourself, the way you do business, you're going to both attract and repel exactly the right people. And that's okay. That's okay to repel people. I think that when we go out and we get so hung up of, you know, about numbers, real estate agents are very judgmental people. Well, you know, how many units did you do? Well, you know, yeah, but her average is only 180. You know, I can do that in, in six units. Or how much volume did you do? Well, I did, you know, 21 million. Well, yeah, but she's in L.A. What's that? You know, eight deals. So, you know, we we judge all the time, and that's one thing we need to stop because this is our life, where we are, where we're planted, with the numbers we have to deal with in our area. And we need to take back our ownership of our business and say, I don't need that kind of aggravation. You know, just do business with people who are like you. Gwen, what database management system are you using? You said you have a new CRM. What software are you using for that? We just bought, and literally, I mean, like about 10 days ago, RealVolve. Dave Crumbie and Mark Stepp and, um, oh my gosh, I apologize to the other two guys who wrote this system. I can't think of their names, but Dave Crumbie wrote Real, which is a great real estate book I encourage everyone to read. Um, And then they developed, and Dave was a former very productive real estate agent. So they wrote this CRM, and for me, it's the first CRM that resonates with me because it is relational. It pulls in everyone's social feed that I put in my database. So when I, and by the way, I'm a big Facebooker, and it's very profitable for me. That's one way to keep touch with my past clients. And we can talk about that a little bit because I never, ever, ever ask anyone to to friend. These are people who have friended me. I think that's obnoxious when your agent asks you to be their friend on Facebook. That's their personal page. Side note. But anyway, this does pull in the social media feed and it does have workflows so we can manage our tasks because we do that in-house. We manage the closings and we manage the listings in-house. And the CRM does everything. It incorporates our Google Calendar and those kinds of things. So I'm brand new, but I'm very critical and I'm a researcher. And so far, I love this. And the customer support is phenomenal. Tell us the name of that software again and and maybe spell it out for us. Sure. It's Realvolve, R-E-A-L-V-O-L-V-E.com. Realvolve, it's by uh, Dave Crumby and Mark Stepp, and Dave wrote a book that was just published a couple months ago called Real, R-E-A-L, and I think it's number one on Amazon for business right now. It's an easy read. It's short. It's nothing else you've ever read, so you should pick it up. Let's talk about how you're staying in touch with your past clients and sphere of influence. What exactly are you doing to continue to build those relationships. And I'm looking for, are you making calls and mail and email and you said Facebook? You know, what exactly are you doing over the course of a year to make that work? 
Not enough. For many years, honestly, um, you know, it was my husband and I, we were closing, just the two of us with no assistant, we're closing between 50 and 80 deals a year. So we just didn't have time. And so we did a very poor job. When we got an assistant, that really helped things. And so we stepped up our game. So I don't want to give the impression that we've been consistently doing this for 29 years because that couldn't be further from the truth. What we're doing now and what I think has led to our growth is that we are relational. So I send out handwritten cards. I don't do as many as, you know, a a lot of people do, but my target is 10 a week. That is phenomenally engaging and encouraging to people. I send quick texts or quick emails or quick Facebook posts with something personal to them. I don't do hand drippy stuff. I probably should, but nothing sounds like me. And here I got called on it once. So I got Happy Grasshopper and I love Dan Stewart and everybody over at Happy Grasshopper and I still have it because you can personalize it. But the first one that I used, I sent out and I didn't personalize it. And I got an email back from somebody else saying, are you really farming out this stuff? Because I can tell right now you didn't write this. And that was a past client who I love and adore and who loves and adores me. And I said, I did. This is absolutely canned. And you can tell. And she's like, OMG, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, okay, can I send them out if I personalize them? And she said, yes. But we have those kinds of relationships with our clients who care about us enough to say, what are you doing? Great feedback. It was. I mean, tremendous. And here's the thing, because I love people. I don't believe in being rude, but I will tell the the truth like it is about I out myself all the time on mistakes and everybody else too. Hey, you know, this is what makes people grow. It gives them permission to also be truthful with us. And we ask our clients, is there any single little way we could have improved your experience? And we wait for the answer, and then we implement it. And so I think they know that we care about the quality of our stuff going out, and they don't want us to look bad. So that's what makes this relationship grow. I'm creating kind of a list here. You go out with handwritten cards. You do some quick text, emails, and Facebook posts. What else do you do to stay in front of your past clients and sphere of influence? One calendar in December, and that's it. And I'm embarrassed, but that's something we're working on. But that's that's all we do. Oh, wow. So you don't have a program where you're sending out postcards each month or letters or making a certain number of phone calls each year or each quarter. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, we do make phone calls, but it's not like one of those. And that's part of what Real Evolve is. So this is something that I want to do, but we have not had, you know, like Contactually does. I played with Contactually, but then when it comes up with those people I'm supposed to call, I get all sweaty and nervous. And so I canceled it because I didn't want them to tell me to be calling people. You know, it's something that I and I did slide dial because really I'm a kind of a black belt introvert, but believe it or not, and I I want to connect with people, but I don't want to, you know, impose. What if they're at work? What if they're in the middle of dinner? What if they're, you know, I always have all those thoughts that I don't want to be tr- intrusive, and so I don't call that often. I use other forms of social media or you know, I'll send a handwritten note, but there's probably, I would say about 50 
or less people that I will pick up the phone and actually call. Wow. Uh, and thank you for bringing this out and telling us what you are and are not doing. This is very insightful. I'm trying to get a, a handle on how these 850 people know that you're in the business and they should be referring business because they are. They're coming back and doing repeat and referral. So you mentioned social media, but it sounded like you were doing kind of a one-on-one thing through the social media, through the text, through the emails. It doesn't sound like you have a formal plan to go out to X number of people either per month or per quarter, but it sounds like you are making contacts. Are you doing it, say, a certain number of hours per day where you're reaching out and talking to people, or is it just kind of happening here or there where maybe you saw someone post something on Facebook and now you're, you're replying to that, something that kind of came into your world and then you're replying back? It's very organic. This is something I think that people ask me about a lot. My new agents on my team ask me about a lot. My own peers in my area ask me about a lot because I'm not sure that this is a skill. I think it is an intention, which is two different things. So somebody can make you, like give you a coach, and they can tell you you have to do this. And I have people that I know that contact me because I'm on their list in their call today. And it goes, hi, it's just me, you know, wanted uh, nothing really to say, but I just wanted to see how you were doing and we need to get together for lunch sometimes. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Okay, their call's done. So I get those calls. I don't want to do that. I'm, I don't, not because it's not the right thing to do, but just because I'd be horrible at it. So for me, it has to be real. I just love people. I'm interested in what they're doing. I hate cold calling. I do not door knock. So for me, the thing that I do want is a better relationship from those people that we've already gotten past the how's the weather stage. And I want to say things like, oh, my gosh, has it already been seven years? Look how she's grown at her birthday, you know, from a, a picture that they posted or something like that, or I'll send a note. But I think the honest answer is maybe I should have developed that skill earlier in my career, and I would pro- I, maybe I'd be doing 300 deals a year. I don't know. But I don't have that skill. I don't have that outgoing, let me call five people today and all that kind of stuff. So I don't do it because I think it would feel contrived. And I think people are very sensitive to people, you know, salespeople being contrived. And I never talk about real estate, by the way. When I call these people, never. So what do you talk about? Um, it depends on the person. If I'm talking to, for example, somebody I sold a house to seven years ago, I have never had a voice-to-voice conversation with her in seven years, but I encouraged her because she signed up for a marathon. I sent her a quick note saying, I can't believe you're doing this. This is crazy, like a bucket list thing. And, you know, go you or something like that. And she sent me a quick message back and said, can you believe this was my time? Thanks for your encouragement. Glad you guys are doing great. You know, it's just connecting. It's like 150 characters, but it's about their life, not mine. That's where the focus is, isn't it? So you're focusing on them. You're building the relationship, a true relationship by finding out what's going on in their life and making a very specific interaction, comment, 
involvement into what they're doing. Sounds kind of like the Ford system. I'm sorry to say I've never heard of that. Sure. So Ford is when you're talking to someone, you talk about their family, you talk about their occupation, you talk about their recreation, you talk about their dreams. It sounds like that's what you're already doing instinctively. Yeah, I would say is exactly it. People over things. So I really don't care about the number of calls I'm supposed to make or how many numbers I'm supposed to have in my database or how many touches I'm supposed to have a year. I mean, those things are important. But if you put people first and you love your job, which is another whole thing, I think that that part of that just comes instinctively. You don't need somebody over your shoulder to tell you to do that. I mean, let's face it. It's not all Pollyanna. We wake up every single day unemployed. My husband and I were very well aware of that. I would rather have 800 people in my database. That's not a lot, by the way, considering I've been doing this for 29 years. Right. It's not. But I don't want just anybody in that database. You know, and when the auto industry fell, we lost probably a good 35% of our database because everyone was transferred out of state. Nobody was coming in. So this database has been much larger than it is right now, but our numbers have never been better because we can, thank God uh, for social media, keep in touch with more people. And, you know, yeah, stamps are 52 cents or whatever the heck they are, but, you know, get those note cards out there. There's nothing like a handwritten note card. Nothing. Now you say you, you do your best to write or your goal or target is to write 10 a week. Is that systematized? Do you, do you go from the first person in the database down through number 850 and you're, you're trying to talk to or write a note to 10 of them each week? Or is it just somebody comes into your you know, you mentioned organic. Someone comes into your life, you notice it, and you send out a handwritten card at that time. Yeah, it should be systemized. Uh, you know, like that's on my goal plan so that I would like to, I mean, I would love it if I did five cards a day. You know, that would be great. That's not practical or realistic for us right now. We have, you know, with um, I'm training my team, I'm still the anchor and, you know, getting everything done. I just it hasn't happened. So it is organic exactly like that right now. Or, you know, I always get these invitations for, you know, some premier jewelry party or, you know, some 31 first party or something like that. So here's the deal with that. I never go because if you go to one and you don't go to the other, you're going to be in trouble. But whatever it is that they have that I'm invited to, I always buy, participate, support, sponsor, you know, send a gift, whatever I need to do, but I never attend. And then that's the same. It's just personal connection and investing in people. And however that happens, my Raj is terrible at writing thank you cards. And this is what I'll say. We really appreciate that you guys, you know, bought and sold through us yet one more time. And I'm writing this card on Roger's behalf because he's terrible at writing thank you cards. We love you people. <laughs> you know, and I just say that. And they laugh. They think it's hilarious. And they know he's terrible at writing thank you cards. You know, or I'll write out the hand and I'll write this card because Roger's terrible at writing thank you cards. And then he'll sign it in his handwriting. And it's hilarious. You've mentioned social media. You've mentioned Facebook. How many friends do you have on Facebook? 
You know what? That's really funny because the last two days I just did quite a few defriending. So let me, I don't really know. I think it's probably somewhere around 950. The 850 that are in your database, how many of those are friends on Facebook? Gosh, I don't know the answer to that, but that would be a really good metric. Did you think that maybe half of them or all of them or only maybe 10 of them? or If you wanted like a wild guess, I would say probably mm, maybe 600, but 600 of those people are not in my database, so they're not the same stream of people. So I might have 600 past clients, fear of influence, that kind of thing on Facebook. Probably I would say those that are in my database are probably maybe around 300-ish. So the people that are in your, your Facebook friends, 300 of those are also in your real estate database. If you make me guess, I'll say 300, yes, but I don't really know. So about a third of your real estate database are friends with you on Facebook. And so that's probably how you're interacting with them on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. You're, you're seeing what's going on in their lives, in your newsfeed, and in theirs. Does that sound accurate? It is. And, and the reason why there aren't more on there is, A, I do not, I do not ask any of my clients ever to be their friend on Facebook. So the ones that are making it over there, those are probably your highest level, the strongest relationships, probably the highest participation in referrals and repeats, if, if we were to look at it, would be my guess, because these are, in, in this case, your top 300. These are probably the top 300 people in your database, because not only are they in your real estate database, they're also really close to you in this Facebook community. Would you agree with that? I would, although there is an element of our top referrers and our top clients that are not our friends on Facebook. Some of them aren't on Facebook at all. Some of them are only on Twitter. There's gray margins of overlap between database and social media. Do you use a lot of Twitter? No. You're mainly focused on Facebook as far as social media. Right. And again, you know, there are things on my bucket list to do. You know, I know all about Hootsuite. I have an account. I know we can schedule tweets out and all of that kind of stuff. But again, I don't believe as real estate agents, we need to do every single thing that every webinar tells us to do. That 140 characters on Twitter is great for a lot of people. It doesn't resonate with me. Facebook does because I like to post the pictures. I like the interaction. I don't need to do it all and don't have time to do it all. So that is probably, I think somebody may, if they're as efficient on Twitter, they're going to have the same or better response than I do in, in Facebook. But I think whatever we do, if we're going to attempt it, you have to be real, you have to be yourself, and you have to be consistent. And I don't have time to be consistent on, you know, Foursquare, Pinterest, Twitter, Facebook, Google+, you know, all of them. In Facebook, how much time are you in Facebook either per day or per week? I would say in Facebook, it kind of depends because my Facebook inbox is almost as busy as my email, to be honest with you. Facebook is by far the most time consuming. I have an alert that if I get a message on Facebook, it does go off on my phone. 
I post probably four times a day. I'll post in the morning. I'll post sometime in the afternoon and I'll post once or, you know, like in the evening and then, you know, sometimes at night. Just quick. Sometimes they're pre-planned. So most of the time, they're a thought that flies into my head at the moment. And that's what I'll post. They're not pre-figured out. And let just let me say this. It's not on my business page either. So if anybody goes to the Integrity Team Facebook business page, uh, it, in my opinion, business pages are completely boring. That's not where my clients are finding me. Sure. So this is on your personal page. You're posting four times a day on average. Are you also looking at the posts from the friends? Are you receiving their posts? Do you go and investigate their page? How do you keep the interaction going? Is it just that they're replying to your posts? Or do you also proactively go out and see what's happening in their lives? Oh, no. On Facebook, you should have lists. And on your list, you should have a list called clients. And you should have another list called realtors. And you should have another list called probationary. And those are the people that are going to get kicked off if they start doing political rant or I don't do off-color stuff. That's just me or whatever. And then you should have a list of, you know, friends or family or whatever other list that you want to have. And then you can limit who sees what posts if you want to. But you need to be really careful about what your persona is. I never talk about politics. It's just... You don't need, as a real estate agent, to be talking about polarizing discussions. There's so many other things to choose to talk about. And if that's what you want to do, then just don't expect to get your business from there because it's just not a good idea, in my opinion. And I do absolutely interact with my clients that are on there, congratulating them. You know, So I would say that my total contribution is probably an hour a day on Facebook. Sometimes not that much, but sometimes it is. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Well, it almost sounds like that's one of your prospecting mediums is building and continuing these relationships and you're doing it through the medium of Facebook. And that's what I'm trying to get a handle on. That's what it's starting to sound like to me. So, for instance, let me ask a question. You said you get a lot of the interaction. You get a lot of uh, notices, messages through Facebook, as many as you're receiving through email. When you get referrals and repeat requests that come into you, are they typically coming in by Facebook, by email, by phone? What's the most common way that they come into you? Email. Email is the most common. Facebook Messenger is busy. It's not as, like my email will be, I got your name from, come list my house kind of thing. Facebook Messenger is when someone, for example, that I don't know, will post, you know, all right, you guys, we're really going to move this time. Does anybody have the name of a good realtor? My clients will go to their page and say, use my realtor. She is awesome. And they will tag me. And when they tag me, it allows me to be in contact with that person who's looking for a realtor. I get tagged all the time. 
on pages and I can't go post on that person's page because in Facebook there, I'm not friends quote with them. But when I get tagged on that page, then I can reach out to that person and say, I heard you have some questions. I'd love to chat. Here's my cell. Shoot me an email. What's convenient for you? And I always communicate with people in the way that they want to be communicated with. I had a laugh the other day. I had a, a guy who uh, was, he was an agent and we're trying to present an offer. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to load this up in DocuSign. I'm going to forward to you in, uh, you know, email. Oh, I don't, I don't do email. You're going to have to call me. I don't do email after, you know, six o'clock at night or something like that because he doesn't have the internet at home. So I'm thinking, okay, well, how are you going to communicate with people who get off work at six o'clock? And that's how they want to communicate. So I think we need to be sensitive. It might not be my favorite way to communicate, Facebook Messenger, but if that's theirs, that's what I'm using. You mentioned early on that there may be 50 people in your database that you'd feel comfortable calling. Do you call those people in any kind of scheduled way over the year to either talk to them or invite them to lunch or do anything unique? No, I wish I did, but I will. I just want to know what you're doing. I'm very practical. You're doing a lot of units. 116 closings a year is phenomenal. And just working to identify how has that come about? So we're not judgmental one way or the other. It's all good. You have created a system that's closing 116 units in a year. And I'm just working to identify how did you do that and let other people know if they wanted to do the same thing, what would they need to do? Well, the first, the first thing that I would say is be real. I think that we just need to not be so guarded sometimes or try to put off some kind of persona that we're not. There has to be consistency between online and offline. Do not get a glamour shot. When I write, you know, thank you card, I'm not going to, uh, let's just pick on my husband, Roger. So Roger's not going to write a thank you card. I'm just telling you, he's not going to write the card. He knows it's a good idea. It's not going to happen. So then what? The client doesn't get a thank you card? No, be real. I'm writing this card because Roger hates to write thank you cards. But we really do appreciate your business. We hope that you had fun during your transaction. You had an education. And let's get together soon or whatever it is that you're going to say. And then he'll sign it. I mean, that's real. That's us. People feel connected. And we've had people say, because then they feel like they're forming a relationship with a person, not a relationship with a persona. And when you have that relationship, it's like we say, you know, we're going to be on vacation for 10 days. I'm so sorry. You know, I can't meet you to list your house on that. Oh, that's okay. We'll wait. Is there anything else better than hearing that? We'll wait. We'll wait for you. So be yourself. Form a relationship. Give people something to cling on to. And, you know, if you're afraid to do that, well, then maybe you need to do some change. And that's all I know. (laughs) Gwen, do you have any type of events throughout the year? Or do you have any kind of either large or small gatherings of your past clients in Sphere of Influence? Do you, for instance, bring them to lunch once a week? Or do you have any kind of big gatherings? Anything along those lines? I get to say yes to this. Two years ago, we decided, okay, we have to do something to start marketing. This is just silly. So now that we formed a team, 
you know, the workload is a little bit more balanced out, and so we found time to do that. Last year was a phenomenal year after having four years of, gosh, you know, let's have 10 for 10 at Kroger this week. We had money in our marketing budget. So for three, four years, I have had a miniature moving van on my desk from a Star Power conference I went to where on the move, I think the moving company is, and we bought a moving van last year. So we saved up our money, we paid cash, we bought it used, had it shipped here, had it wrapped, and we immediately announced our new team member and offered it for free use to not only all of our past clients, but you know, churches, nonprofits, people who need it. It's delivered food, you know, it's in service. So that's one thing. Another thing that we did, which we thought would be a really great idea, and it kind of was, is there's a place by us called Bauer School Farm. And it's a little farm right here in the suburbia. And the schools go there. It's Bloomfield Hills School sponsored. And we rented it for a day in October, close to uh, Halloween. And we had pony rides for the kids. They did hayride with a pumpkin patch. They got to take home a pumpkin. We had apple cider and donuts. We had, there's a 10 acre corn maze, a bonfire, you know, just great for people to get together. So we did that. The cost on that we had, let's see, what did we send out? I think it was about 600 invitations. It was a horrible, horrible weather day. It was like 46 and raining, but we still had about 250 people come. And then what else did we do? In December, we rented a theater for the premiere of The Hobbit. It was 3D. We first rented a 100-seat theater, and it was so incredibly affordable. Gosh, I wish I had my exact numbers here for the 100. I think it was like $1,500 or something like that for 100-seat, and it included popcorn and pop for every single person who came. So that sold out. Within And by sold out, I mean it, they had to just download a free ticket. That was gone in like 48 hours from our past clients. We just sent it to our whole, you know, 800, no vendors, but we sent it to our past clients. And so then we upped it to a 200-seat theater, and that was gone inside of about, I think it was seven or eight days. It was completely full. And, and the theater was full. We did not get up with a microphone. I did not want it to be about me and say, thank you all for being here. Look who we are. We had a great year. Thank you. We totally make it all about our clients. So we did a slideshow presentation. And on the slideshow before, instead of movie trailers, before the show started, it had every family who was in attendance who downloaded tickets. And we just said, thank you to the Bartlett family. You know, thank you. Josh and Rachel got a sitter for the first time for Parker. And then we put a pause in after the music. So we tried to, we did talk about each client personally, but if we had new personal information, you know, congratulations on your graduation or just married or whatever about those clients. And we did that, but I never stood up and took a microphone or anything. And that was that was phenomenal. So we'll do that again. So you said it was about $1,500 for 100 seats. So was it $3,000 for the 200-seat theater? Less than. It was like twenty six fifty. From a business perspective, do you think it was worthwhile? Did you get a lot of referrals or requests for business immediately after the show? You know, it was not immediately after the show, but what we did get was 
we invited one of our clients who's never bought or sold with us, but he's an attorney. So we've gotten two referrals from him. We have gotten two referrals from our financial planner. We got another opportunity from a client that came that we got to meet with his four partners of his financial planning firm, and then we have gotten a client from them. So it wasn't like somebody called us the next day and said, hey, would you sell our house? Because the people that were there, we thought would have done that anyway. But the family and friends this spring are showing up. So, so let's be real in Michigan. I mean, I think that we were moles from like December to March, like nobody came out of their house. Houses weren't moving. I mean, it was a very slow market. So we didn't really expect any immediate business from December, but I think we're definitely seeing it this spring. So it sounds like you invited your vendors to this event as well as your past clients and sphere of influence. We only invited the vendors who were already our past clients. So in other words, the attorney who came and brought his family, we have gone to his house and done a market analysis for him, but they're not at a place right now in the market that they should move, like they're not going to make money on their house. But because he had scheduled an appointment with us, he gets in our database because we consider him now a client. But like my typical vendors, like you know, somebody who we refer out. And when I say vendor, let's define that. We have a Gwenny's list on my webpage and it's people who repair windows, install carpet, you know, do home inspections, do cement work, you know, all of that kind of stuff I consider our vendors. But the only vendors that were on our list were people that still qualify under the four criteria. Anything else that you would recommend to someone who wants to grow their business and do it through repeating referrals from past clients and sphere of influence. Any other advice you could give them? Yes, kill the deal when you need to. Don't let them buy something they're going to regret. And you need to say things when you're working with them like, this is a house that when you call me to sell it, I'm going to be proud to sell it. It's going, you're going to be happy. Make your decisions based on your core values. Let Let them know that you have core values. Let them know that they're not your grocery bill next week, that you're in this for the long haul if it takes 30 houses. I think the problem is, and we've been there, when you need the money, people can feel that. It's like a pheromone or something. I mean, they can smell that it's the money first. When you are relaxed and you're just yourself and you are asking them difficult questions, like, I understand that you like this house, but this is... 15 minutes outside of your drive time. Are you okay changing that criteria? You're throwing up objections to a house that they want to buy because you're concerned about them. You have to let people know that it's people over things. And when they know that you're not just going to sell them anything, I mean, that is worth so much more. I don't know. You can't put that in a note card. You can't put it in a text. You can't tweet it. You have to own that in your soul and let people know that they're first. And I'm telling you that if you worry about that, you'll not have to worry about business. Gwen, you've mentioned your team a few times. Sounds like you started building your team maybe two years ago or three years ago. Does that sound correct? 2011. Yeah, 2011, midway. So two and a half, three years. What does the team look like today? What are those positions and what are they responsible for? So I have three buyer specialists, one executive assistant who 
helps take some of the admin off of me, as well as she processes our listings. And then I just hired a closing coordinator literally four days ago. Both of these are part-time. My executive assistant is a busy mom of four, and so she does not work a 40-hour week, and she has a lot of flexibility, so she doesn't miss field trips and that kind of thing because we're all about claiming your life here. My closing coordinator is also part-time. She works from her house. She gets paid on a per-transaction basis at closing. And then I am the team leader, and I do the listings for the team primarily, and I am in the process of training one of my buyer specialists to also take listings. You mentioned that your coordinator is working on a per-transaction basis. Is she an independent contractor or is she an employee? My closing coordinator that I just hired, who is part-time, she is a flat rate employee per transaction on the close. I pay her $250 for every closing that she closes. If the deal falls apart after the inspection, then she gets a $50 cancellation fee. You've kept the, the expenses for your staff variable to you. They're not fixed. They're variable. So let me address that for a minute because this is something, like I have battle stars over this. This has cost me, you know, lots and lots of sleep because I had an assistant, uh, what was that, just before the market fell. So I'm going to say like 2003 to 2005-ish, right? Single mom three kids, love her. When the market fell, I had to let her go. Like I could have had therapy over that because I worried so much about her. It was the most painful thing I have ever had to do. It was like letting go of my family, you know, literally. And so when I knew, because I was working myself to death, that I had to develop a team, and that's a whole nother story, is at the same time my mom was on hospice, I was taking care of my mom, doing a ton of transactions, trying to do everything, nearly lost my mind. And I knew that I needed to hire somebody to help me, but I was scared to death to go through that, you know, what if the business falls down again and I'm going to have to let somebody else go, And because again, I'm people over things, right? So everybody on my team has to sell, everybody including my executive assistant. And so I'll just lay it out for you how it is because to me it's fabulous. My executive assistant makes a base salary, which is not nearly what anyone else should be paying. I'm not going to say what it is, but it's, it's on the low scale for an admin. But she gets 25% referral fee for anybody that she brings in. She is expected to bring in enough business to cover her own salary. And that's the way she works. She's my executive assistant plus my listing coordinator. So let's just say that somebody's base salary is $20,000 a year. She is expected to be my ambassador into her community that I don't have relationships with. And all she is expected to do is to get me an appointment. The skill to get the listing is my job. Her job is to get me an appointment, to get me in the door. That's it. Once she does that, then I get the listing, then she gets a 25% referral fee for bringing it in, plus, of course, she's on a base salary. Do you want me to explain the closing coordinator? Yes, please. Okay. So I set this up, and everything is in writing. This is a 
cooperative agreement. Everybody's in agreement. So I'm sorry, just to go back to my executive assistant, for her, her income then is pretty unlimited because she, with four kids, do you know they're all in sports? She's in PTA. She has a ton of contacts. So she can make quite a bit of money just by sending people in for referrals. The closing coordinator, because my executive assistant was doing both processing transactions and processing listings. Well, at 116, okay, we probably need to divide that up. So we hired a closing coordinator and, you know, her own hours, her own thing, my laptop, my information. Nothing of her personal stuff goes on my laptop and vice versa. And she works from home. I don't care when. And she gets paid $250 for every single transaction. It's great for her because, you know, she's um, not quite retirement age, but she's not really looking for a a a 40-hour-a-week job that she has to travel to either. It's flexible that if she goes somewhere, she can take the laptop with her and do business from there. And she processes the transactions for $250 a piece. Both of them are W-2 employees. You mentioned you brought in some buyer specialists. What type of compensation program do you have for them? So I never hire existing agents. These are brand new agents, and it's really interesting because my first buyer's agent, other than my partner, Roger, okay, he's been with me like 17 years, so the lead buyer's agent, we're not going to talk about him. The first buyer's agent been with me three years. He is a past client. And he's also an architect. And I sold he and his wife their first house. And he contacted me one day in 2011 and said, I think it was 2011, might be 2010 at the end, and said, you know, I don't want to take up any of your time whatsoever, but I'm not really happy, you know, with what I'm doing. And I just got my real estate license. I'm wondering if you just give me some direction as to what company to work for, et cetera. And at that time, it was just Roger and I. We had no assistant. We had nothing. And so I said, sure. And I thought, okay, here's an hour out of the day I don't have, but it's a past client and it's an opportunity to meet with them and get referrals. So I sat with him at Starbucks and we talked about real estate. And he was so passionate about it, I couldn't say no. And I said, okay, well, why don't you shadow me for a month? I'm not going to pay you. We're not going to join dues. You can just shadow me for a month and then we'll talk about it. I thought the kid would last two weeks. Phenomenal. The great buyer's agent. The second buyer's agent that I had was also my past client. And he had a terrible situation personally, ended up having to short sale his house. And I met him like in that time frame. And so later on, when his job fell apart, and I heard about it through social media, Facebook, I contacted him privately. And I said, what in the world are you going to do at this point? Because I care about this kid. And he said, well, I really don't know. And I said, look, you've got 14 rental properties. You know how to flip houses. You know how to purchase houses. Why don't you come shadow our team for a couple of weeks, see what you think, and then we'll talk about getting your license. He came, loved it, got his license, and was with me probably for about a year. 
We still have an affiliation. I have his license escrowed under my company, but he's no longer doing real estate stuff because his property management, and he also installs uh, and inspects for the county. That has gotten so big, I have a minimum requirement on my team that he doesn't have time to make. And so we um, redeployed him back to that world, but he was just at our team event. So we're still very close with him. My newest buyer's agent just got her license in October. She is also a past client. So she lost her job. I knew that from social media. She has a history in sales, probably 20 years or so. She is delightful. She's bubbly. I know her background. I know her family. And I make no promises. Look, here's what we are. This is what the minimums are. It's really tough. You're going to have to give up your hours. I'm rigid. These are our core values. If all of that fits with you, come on board. We'll see how it works. And that was in October. And she loves her job. We love her. I think she's going to be a smash. She's just started actively selling, I think, in February because you have to go through a training process. And I think she's closed eight deals since, since October. Maybe, no, I'm sorry, probably 10, 10 since October. So that's my, my buying staff. We do have a little bit of an unusual plan with them. They, you have to close two deals a month. So, so there's a 24 minimum to be on the team because we don't want people to, you know, get into a country club and have one deal a year for $2 million or something because you don't have enough experience here to handle all the tough situations as a buyer's agent if you're not doing a lot of volume. So they have to close whatever price point they are, two deals a month, and we have conversion, which gives them those buyer's leads. And if they do not close two deals a month, they have to pay me $500. They pay all their own dues. I don't pay their dues. They pay their own phone. And I cover, you know, like all the admin and the conversion and all the systems and all of the things that make them profitable, business cards, all that kind of stuff. What's the split? that would be paid out for each transaction? Is it the same for all closings or is it some type of sliding scale? No, we haven't really grown. I mean, we did 21 million, but I don't have any one buyer's agents that's producing over 5 million, but we will have a commission upgrade at 5 million. But it's 50-50 is what our split is. A new agent has to start out as a showing assistant, though. They don't write contracts. When they're a showing assistant, we have a 30-70 split. When they're actually writing the contract, so let me back up. When they're a showing assistant, they show the client the house, the client finds the one. We do the market analysis as the, the lead buyer's agent. Roger will you know, do the market analysis, write the contract along with them so that they can see what he's doing and present, do all the negotiation and, and do all of the work with closing the deal. When you graduate from that, you do 10 transactions that you're on your own at 40% when the buyer's agent is writing the contract and just it's being overseen by a lead buyer's agent, but the buyer's agent's not doing all the writing and negotiating, then it's 40%. After 10 transactions or whenever I feel comfortable to put my name on this person, then they will graduate to a 50-50 split. If they do not make their two minimum transactions per month, and that's evaluated quarterly, so they have, they have nothing in January, four in February, and two in March, that's still six. 
And so we're good with that. But if they do not have that, they go back to a 40%. If they go do not have it the next three months, they go back to 30. If they do not have it the next three months, then they need to go find what they should be doing because it isn't real estate. It sounds like Roger's working with you as your lead buyer agent. Is, is that his uh, official title? And is he managing the buyer agents? That is his official title. Does he manage buyer agents? I would say it's a partnership between he and I. I have a business coach, and I have a coach to build this team. And so I do primarily all of the coaching for the team because I want all of our clients to have one experience with our team, which means, and I say this, if they want to come on this team, you need to know, you need to walk like me, talk like me, and do business like me, because when people call, that's who they think they're working with. And so if you have a problem with that, we understand, you know, go do business somewhere else. So this is my business. I have built it that way. I have a certain core values. So I do most of the training. Roger would be the go-to, for example, if they have a question on how to write a particular contract or how to deal with something in a contract or negotiate something. Are you profitable? We are profitable, but barely last year. Uh, Last year, our profit margin was about 50%, which I guess isn't barely. I would love to be a lot more profitable. However, Last year was our first good year here in the Detroit metro area where we actually had good sales. Our volume was up. I mean, we've just been in this, you know, pit for so long. And what we did last year was we invested a tremendous amount of money back into our infrastructure and into our company. So we're anticipating that we'll be much more profitable this year. But last year, and I mentioned this, for example, we bought the moving van, which is a tremendous asset for our buyer's agents to get more business and referrals from their own buyer's you know, that they've been given because they get to offer that too. And the moving van was $30,000. I don't think I gave the amount on that, but we bought it used for like 21,000 or something, which was a great deal, but I wanted it wrapped like McDonald's wraps their truck really well. So that did end up being about a $30,000 investment. We had a custom website built, which was probably between five and $10,000. And we're still working on that where we'll have some landing pages and things. And we also upgraded, you know, like our technology. We had some laptops come in and things like that. So we had, I think, over probably $100,000 that we invested back in our business last year. Well, Gwen, what drives you? I like to wring life out. I really do. I mean, I think that we have a choice that we can go through life kind of ho-hum. You know, some of us are regimented to a job. Some of us are regimented to a location. Some of us are, you know, just in a place. It really is what you make of it. I'd love to be in a warmer climate, you know, selling houses with an average sale price of 400 or 450 And God bless my friends that are. I'm so happy for them. But that is not my life. You know, I have three foot of snow and 18 degrees below zero. And, you know, my average price point is $180,000. I sold a house for $9,800 last year, $9,800. Like put one on your visa. (laughs) It, It isn't the money. It's that you're changing people's lives. And that might sound like all warm and fuzzy, but you know what? Your head has to be in the game. That is what drives me, making a difference. We determine where people 
go to school, shop, you know, what their quality of life is going to be, how this house is going to be for them as an investment. You know, we're, we know whether or not these people, the way they live, if they're going to find something out after they move in that isn't such a great idea like the landfill that's a mile away or, you know, some other thing. It has to be people over things. And if you really love and I'm very passionate about my business and it just drives me to do the best we can and so that we can have the best life that we can with our family. I'm just a Girl Scout. I love life and I love making people happy. So that does it for me. Gwen, why have you been so successful? I love change. I am always open to do something better. In fact, my team, each one of them are considered in their own position. We don't call it an entrepreneur. We call it an entrepreneur, which means their own position is their own little business. And part of what they are required to do, and I have all this in writing, but what they are required to do is to be aware of their process, their flow, their environment, and their experience, and they are charged with bringing us any conflict or friction points that they have in the system that I have developed in which they're going to work. So we we really do want to do everything the best that we possibly can. My team is the same way. Every single person, I never look for them like, wow, I haven't seen them in a while. They're all in the office every day. Just building an environment that you want to to live and work in. And, And that motivates me making a difference and just having a good life. Gwen, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I think I would tell them to get a mentor. It took me six months to get my first paycheck in this business because I was hired by a real estate broker who did absolutely zero training. I did not have a mentor. I did not have a coach until probably in the last five years, which is why I didn't know about star power. I didn't know things like that existed. I always kept my head down. I don't participate in gossip or, you know, all that water cooler negativity stuff. I was the one in my office, you know, creating relationships and selling houses. And so that, I think, was a mistake. I should have gotten a mentor sooner. I should have reached out and done more research and found other people who were willing to share. And that, to me, like the people that you have interviewed before, that Howard interviewed before, those are the people that have pulled me along here. That's what I would have done in the beginning. Gwen, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I have to tell you, I was extremely intimidated to be interviewed here because, you know, I'm just a girl in Metro Detroit who nearly went out of business five years ago and and I was drowning and I raised my hand, you know, at some conference and, and said, someone help me. I don't know how to turn this ship around. And it was amazing to me that listening to an interview and attending my first conference when people, how giving they were and how freely they shared and I couldn't write fast enough and I started implementing some of those things and they gave me hope as well as an education. Well, Gwen, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the agents listening? 
this is where I am today. This is um, my experienced self, I guess, talking and, and someone who's now very comfortable in my skin. I would have two thoughts. Number one, stop comparing yourself to anyone else or everyone else. It's not a fair comparison of either of you. Don't talk or think about who's doing more production or what kind of volume they did or, yeah, they did it because they inherited the business or, you know, they have some kind of insight. Just stop all that kind of stuff. Stop comparing. Analyze where you are in your business and the tools that you have to work with and go from there. The second thing that I have learned, and this is all through this hard time. I mean, you know, I have a a tough story, but I've learned that you can read all the books the best books, you can have all the best systems, you can have the great CRM, you can get a great coach, but if your mind is a toxic place, none of that is going to help you because it's falling on toxic territory. Real estate is first a head game in your own head. And then you can add all of those things and these interviews and then you will go places. But my head was toxic. And I almost went out of business. When I turned that around first, then all of the other stuff could take seed and, and fruit out into the production that I'm doing here. This was not 116 transactions in 29 years. This is, oh my gosh, I'm, on, I'm almost out of business. How can I turn this around? This production is basically a three-year story. It sounds like you may have had some toxic thoughts in your head. You had to cleanse out your your head or remove those thoughts. How did you do that? You know, the real story is I took like the last of our savings that were here because we fed our business out of our savings just to stay in business for about three or four years. And I took the last chunk of money and I went to LEAD, which was a weekend conference on how to be a leader. And I only did it because A, it was a money back guarantee no questions asked. And B, I thought if I went to this conference, it would solidify the thought that I had that I did not have what it took to be a productive team leader in Metro Detroit. Like I, I can't do this. I didn't go to college. I, you know, I started this early. I didn't have a real estate background. I got into the business with $500 You know, I didn't have any resources except what I built up. And, of course, at that time when I had this mentality, you know, GM had just declared bankruptcy. Uh, I'd lost 40% of my database, 35 or 40. You know, short sales were like it was almost impossible to do business. And so my mom was sick. You know, there's a bunch of stuff. It's like a frog in a boiling pot of water. You can be the most positive spirit, and I am. Like I'm allergic to negativity. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to us. And it happened to me without my even realizing it is that I wasn't negative. I was just toxic. My self-talk was, I'm going to have to find something to do. Gosh, do I remember how to do clerical? Can I go back to a CPA firm? What else am I going to do? How can I short sale my own house? I mean, I was just constantly thinking about the bad thing and the what ifs. And I went to this conference Actually, um, I went to a Star Power conference, and that was my very first one. 
And I heard people talking about the things that they did. And I got up the courage, you know, to ask a question because to me, you know, I had just, I was nobody. I was just a little girl from Michigan trying to, you know, claw my way into staying in the industry. And that person, it was Rita Driver. She poured out. Okay, wow. It's okay. Sorry. That's okay. She, okay, wow. T- take good. a sip, take a sip of coffee. All right, hang on. All right, tears are liquid passion. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Rita Driver poured out, uh, like, everything she could to help me. And I was so blown away. Rita took the time to pour out everything that she knew. Sorry, that was a tough time. That helped me in that situation. And I was so blown away by her generosity and a lack of judgment that to me, I was right in the middle of being a failure at my job. I'd never had a worse year. It just made a profound impact on my life. Oh, excuse me. And on my career from that point forward. And she said, I told her, you know, how much that meant to me. And to this day, I have a um, a note from her that hangs on my fridge. So basically what I'm hearing, Gwen, is you reached out for help and someone else grabbed your hand and pulled you in. A lot of someone else's. Rita did, McNaughton's. I mean, people that you think that would never give you, you know, the time of day. If you just have the courage to ask, I mean, they are so generous with what they know. And I think that there's this prevailing opinion that, you know, people that do certain kinds of volume or certain kinds of numbers, you know, have something special or maybe they have an advantage or maybe they have, you know, they're smarter or they have more money or they have more of something. They don't have more of anything. We all have or each have exactly what we need to do this. You just need to be teachable. You need to be humble. And you need to be courageous and just go do it because you can't manifest yourself into success. You can listen to all the good stuff, but at some point there's action. So you need to go work your butt off too. But reach out. I mean, I was drowning. Real estate is a head game. Get your head right first. And then all of that stuff that comes in, be willing to take it. You know, change your life. Change your mind. Change your systems. Throw things out. Admit you know, you're doing things the wrong way because people will coach you right into the best place in your career. Well, Gwen, congratulations on the turnaround. And I'm real excited that you opened up and shared that it was a a joint effort. You determined that things needed to change. You went and told people that you needed some help. They stood up and helped. And now you're in a much better place. A much better place. And I'm so grateful. 
so grateful. Hard conversations. Do this. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? You need to change this. Hard conversations are so valuable. Be willing to have them. Well, Gwen, you shared with us how markets can change and throw us off our game even after two decades in the business. You also showed us how you can recognize the challenge, ask for help, and turn around any adverse situation. In the end, it came down to your guiding mantra of people over things. The top agents helped you regain control of your business, and you helped people in your database regain control over their home choices. As you like to say, we all have exactly what we need to succeed. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 219 homes last year or $74 million in the Midwest. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.